my joy again to preach this morning and uh, I want to speak about um, the value of, of family this morning in terms of our vision series that we're looking at. Remember the last couple of weeks I've had a look at what it means to be rooted in Christ and we had a look at the ordinary means of grace that God has made available to us, uh, things like prayer and worship and preaching and that we can grow through those ordinary means of grace that God makes available to us. And then last week I had a look at the incredible privilege that we have, the freedom that we have in Jesus, and what that means, that uh, our privilege as those that have been saved by faith is that there's no condemnation for us. And then the other part of that was the joy that we have is that we live by the voice of the Spirit in our lives, that there's no legalism that's uh, uh, forced onto us, but we are free in Christ and that we hear His voice telling us day by day what to do and how to live. And it's a great privilege and joy to, to know those two things. And so today I want to speak about family and the value of family and uh, in terms of our mission statement that we are rooted in Christ, but then we are also planted in family. And I want to have a look at what that means this morning. And I think uh, part of what this lockdown has done has given us time, afforded us time to rethink some things uh, that are our value, what really is our value. And I think even in terms of church community and how we do church, that it's afforded us an opportunity to step back as we're not able to meet together so regularly and to think about, well, what does church really mean and what does community really mean? And so as I explore that with you this morning, I really do want to encourage you that in your own thinking and your own uh, um, consideration of these things, that we go back to the source, we go back to the Bible, we go back to what the Bible says about church, and what the Bible says about family, and what the Bible says about community. I think too often people go to sources outside of the original, and so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what other people have said, or what other people have written, and whenever we um, study things, the, the best means that we have is to go to the original and to find out what the original says. And so I want to encourage you this morning that as we look at these things, family, community, and what it means to belong to a church, that uh, in your thinking and in your, in your wrestling with these things, you go back to the source, the scripture, and see what the scripture has to say about these things. And so part of the dream that we have um, for this church is that it would continue to grow and be healthy and strong, that it would become a base to resource other churches. And I trust over the years that I had, we will see many churches planted out from this one that would be a blessing to this nation and the nations of the world. But uh, I want to speak this morning more, more um, focusedly on family and what it means to belong to church community. And I really want to just consider three very basic questions with you this morning. One is, the first is, well, what is church? Uh, secondly, why is it, 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 why is it important? And lastly, what does it mean to be a member, to commit yourself to a church family? And I think all, the, all those three things are vital to consider. So let's look at the first thing. What is a church? And I would just like to uh, introduce it by saying this, that the word church is a uniquely Christian word. Um, if you think about it, uh, you don't talk about a Buddhist church or a Jewish church. Uh, we speak about a Buddhist temple. We speak about a Jewish synagogue. We speak about a Hindu ashram. The word church very much is a Christian word, and it always has been a Christian word. And also another thing to consider is that church, as the word church has never primarily meant a building. In fact, for the first 300 years of church history, 
um, they didn't have any church buildings to meet in. Uh, and so right from the, the birth of the church in the book of Acts, it's always, the word church has always meant a loving, caring, covenant community who love Jesus and who love each other. That's what the word has is, is always meant. And so the church described in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, is simply people that have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And they just, this, this group of people is described in different ways throughout the New Testament, sometimes as a family, sometimes as a household, a temple, a body. All these use, words are used to describe a church. And so church then is in any, const, any given uh, area, constituted area, it's simply those that are saved by faith and committed to Jesus, and that constitutes the church. So in St. Albans, there are a whole group of Christians, and together, all the different local expressions of church make up the church in St. Albans. And also, I need to say this, that there certainly are few portions in the New Testament where the word church does refer to the universal church. In fact, when we're, when we're saved, we are saved into God's universal church. In other words, we become one with every Christian that has ever put their faith in Jesus. That's true. But overwhelmingly, the vast majority of times that uh, the New Testament speaks about church, it refers to a local, living, loving collection of people that are committed to Christ and committed to each other. So the word church overwhelmingly in the New Testament has a context of community and local expressions of believers that come together. Also, 1 Corinthians 5 makes it quite clear that you can be excluded from this community uh, in the various reasons for that. And 1 Corinthians 5 speaks about a man who sleeps with his mother-in-law and on that basis, as he refuses to repent of that, he is excluded from the local church, which obviously means that you can be included into the family and need to be included into the family of the local church. So that's just a little introduction. What is a church? Secondly, we want to consider why is church important? Well, one of the promises that God gave us as a local church when we, we planted this church 20 years ago was that he would set the lonely in families. And this is a high value that we hold on to, and it's a beautiful thing. And it's also a wonderful assurance to us from God that he really does want to include all people in his family, which is the church. The reality, although, is that at the, we also live in a world that is quite cynical and quite negative and quite suspicious, especially around trust and commitment. And um, there's a, there seems to be a, pho a phobia. You know, we have this expression FOMO, fear of missing out, right? Um, there's kind of generally in our culture, there's this, this fear that if we commit to something and we give ourselves to something, we are missing out on something that's even better. And so as a result of that, people keep their options open. They don't really commit wholeheartedly to one thing because there might be something better that they haven't yet seen. And so we see this expressed in many ways in our, in our community. Um, I was looking this week at a publication that the Anglican Church has put out, just looking at the whole issue of marriage, and they were looking at some statistics, and uh, less than 50% uh, of children now are born with inside traditional marriage uh, covenants. Uh, more than 50% of children are born now outside of wedlock. Less than 50% of people um, marry. 
more people now cohabit rather than marrying. And this is a, just a common view in our culture right now in terms of people's view of marriage, that um, don't really commit, rather cohabit. And uh, that's a real issue that also we see worked out in churches and the people's view of churches and, and how they commit to a local church. And so many Christians don't fully commit to a local church because they're keeping their options open and they think that they might find something better somewhere else. The question is, why, how did we end up with this kind of mindset? Why did we end up here? Well, um, I want to briefly look at a couple of things this morning uh, which describe periods of, of recent history uh, how, and help us to understand how we've arrived at this place in our culture and how we f why we find ourselves currently at this place. And these things you know. Uh, I'm sure many of you know this, but... Um, just to refresh your memory, I'm going to speak a little bit around the baby boomer generation, generation X, and the millennial generation, uh, and just to give us, uh, help us understand how, how we've ended up with this kind of distrust in our culture. So let's just look at those um, perspectives, and I, I, wanna, I want to say this, I'm not, I'm not asking us to look at these to show so much how much we are different from each other, depending on our ages, but how we can engage with each other and how we can really seek to understand other people and why they think the way they do. And there's a reason why we think the way that we do. Uh, we inherit things, we've grown up in, a, in different contexts, and that's why we view the world slightly differently. And so I want to encourage you that as we think about these things, it's to really connect with each other and to help understand how, why different people view the world in a different way, that we can engage with each other and understand each other. And it, obviously in our context, we want the gospel to be preached into all these different generations. We have a value as a church to be multi-generational. So we want to try and understand all people, include all people, and then hand the gospel on to the generations that are coming after us. So let's start with the baby boomers. Uh, the baby boomers uh, obviously has, um, uh, came the generation immediately after the Second World War and the baby boom that happened after the Second World War. And this refers to people that were born between 1946 and 1964. And as a group, this group of people were the wealthiest, the most active, and most physically fit generation up until that period of history. And they were, really were, grew up in a context where they genuinely were expecting the world to improve. And we certainly have seen the world improve since the Second World War in many, many ways. And they, they experienced levels of income that n people had not experienced before. And they, that, as a result of that, enjoyed a lifestyle that people had never enjoyed before uh, in, different, in terms of growing um, affluence, in terms of goods and food and health and all these things that we enjoy today. Looking back now, there's that kind of consumerism and... Uh, accumulation of wealth has been criticized now as we look back as uh, excessive and many of the problems that we face right now, a world that is polluted, oceans that are full of plastic, um, climate change issues that we face are a direct result of some of those excesses of people accumulating more and more things over a period of time and this disposable kind of view of life. Uh, one of the features of 
baby boomers is that they tended to think of themselves as a special generation, different to anyone who had come before. And uh, we see this in the 1960s, for example, where fashion and music uh, were very much specific to an age group of young people that saw themselves very differently as to anyone who had come before. And they had a specific language, they had a spe specific rhetoric, how they saw themselves. And that was expressed through music and fashion in the 60s. And that had a, a very important um, uh, impact on the, the perception that boomers had of themselves. And for the first time, people started talking of themselves as belonging to different generations. This is a very uh, a thing that uh, really was most apparent after the Second World War. And so that's generally the baby boomers, right? And after the baby boomers comes Generation X, those be born between 1965 and 1976. And this kind of generation saw themselves as being counter-cultural and a little bit rebellious. And if you think of the music of the 70s, you can see that it was... A, a, the, I remember reading a book when I was doing a music history at university called The Splintered 70s. And if you think of uh, pop music in the 70s, it was, it was kind of all over the place. People were trying to find their own voice and their own sense of identity. And so we had glam rock and we had heavy metal and we had all these things that, that developed in the 70s in music as people were trying to find their own voice. It was a little, a little bit rebellious. I don't know if you remember um, Gene Vincent and the guys from Kiss who used to paint their faces in these kind of really rebellious kind of ways and parents were very concerned about their children <laughs> and, and all those kind of things. Um, and it was kind of this rebellious nature in terms of, of music. Um, and so, interestingly, I, I, I was born in 1964, which is right at the end of the baby boomers and sort of right at the beginning of Generation X. So I, I don't know what that says about um, my generation or myself. Hopefully not that I'm a bit of a rebel that um, has caused problems that we now face all over the world. Um, but uh, that's where I sit, right in the middle of these two generations. And then after Generation X comes uh, Generation Y, uh, also called the Millennial Generation. And this is really people that were born between 1982, right, early 1980s, and 2000, early 2000s. Um, and really represents right now uh, in our, in our, in our, uh, our communities, 81 million people that have already entered the workplace and have gone through university. Um, and they will replace, the millennial generation is going to replace baby boomers as they retire. So if you're under 35 right now, uh, this is kind of the millennial generation is the generation that you would have grown up in. Um, and interestingly, there, there, there again is... Uh, uh, things that characterize millennials in, the, in the how they think. Um, and one of the things is that millennial people want to change the world. This is a very wonderful, um, noble thing. They, they want to do good as they earn money. And so you, you have, uh, have seen, we've seen over the last years a real sense of ethical um, in, uh, businesses, uh, sourcing organic foods, um, uh, ethical source of coffee, for example, Millennials are very concerned that the impact on the, that they're having on the world needs to be a positive one. They want to change the world, and that's a very pos uh, positive thing. Uh, they are also the first um, digital, digital natives. In other words, they've grown up in a world 
that has only known the internet, has only known social media, and haven't known a world where none of those things were around. And so they really are much more connected in ways that previous generations were not. They are socially very, very connected and digitally very, very connected. The reality is also that people under 35 uh, are going to be financially worse off than their parents. Remember, their parents were the generation that managed to accumulate all this wealth. Um, so they're going to be financially worse off, but in a real sense also, are inheriting a world that is much better off in certain ways. There's certainly um, been a decrease in world poverty. There's increased access to health care and education. And there's a large amount of possibilities that have now become uh, uh, available due to technology that we haven't had before. And so in a real sense, younger people are inheriting a world that is a whole lot better off than the world that their parents knew. And I, I was just thinking it's um, this very, very evident in the, in, in, when we look at uh, conflict in the world. Um, and uh, I, I was just uh, looking at some numbers. Um, in World War I, so if, you, if we look at the last 100 years, the first 50 years of the last century, so between nine, 1900 and 1950, in World War I, 38 million people were killed in the First World War. In World War II, there were another 60 million people killed, which was 3% of the total population in 1940. So... 60 million people killed in the Second World War. So if you put those two figures together, just in just uh, the first two world, the, the, the two world wars, 98 million people lost their lives during those two conflicts. And then we have to add to that some other conflicts that happened in the world. The Russian Revolution with the Bolsheviks and the, the coming of, of communism, 9 million people were killed in the Russian Revolution. And in addition to that, Mao Zedong and the, the uh, communist revolution in China, he killed 45 million people in four years. So Mao Zedong actually is the, is the greatest mass murderer in the history of the world. So if we put those figures all together, it's staggering. In the first 50 years of the last century, between 1900 and 1950, 152 million people died in conflicts in the world. That is absolutely staggering. And so when we think about the world and we think of our own problems of climate change and COVID and uh, pollution and all the things that we're facing right now, in some ways, the conflicts, the things that we are facing are nothing like what our grandparents and parents had to face in rebuilding the world after those terrible years, those 50 years of absolute conflict in the world. And so that's good to bear in mind. It's always a context, and we need to see ourselves in a context that helps us to get perspective. The other thing that um, st statistics tell us is that millennials are not in a rush to get married, and they often, they often cite financial ins insecurity, which is a real thing, that they don't want to commit to marriage because they don't have um, finances to buy a house, etc., etc., and millennials are likely also to be much, much more concerned with human rights and civil rights and liberties than their parents were. And that's a reality of, of uh, the last 20 years. And we've, uh, we, we all know that that is a reality. What is most striking, though, is that in all of this, 
people are much less trusting than they were before. And uh, I suppose the downside of growing up um, in the most prosperous uh, 20, 30 years that the world has ever known is that you can, you can start to take things for granted in terms of material things that it's always been like that. And it can produce in you a, a sense of entitlement that uh, I deserve these things. But um, obviously our grandparents didn't grow up with that sense of entitlement because they had already experienced such pain and loss in the world and they were trying to rebuild it um, in a way that we have not had to do. It's interesting also that um, just like the baby boomers, millennials have also grown uh, to think that their generation is special, um, uh, like, unlike uh, previous generations. And I guess that's, that's the truth uh, of all of us, that whatever generation we belong to, we, we hold to the fact that we are different from others and that our generation is special in some way. And um, also that millennials have been... Uh, taught to dream that they can, if they put their minds to it, um, you can achieve anything you want. And that certainly is, is true in some ways, but uh, it's only partly true. Um, I always think of it like this, as, as much as I want to run as fast as Usain Bolt, I never will, <laughs> simply because there are some natural inequalities that are just are. Uh, Usain Bolt is a whole lot taller than me, is a whole lot stronger than me, the length of his stride is a whole lot stronger, uh, longer, and he's certainly always going to run faster than I ever will. And that's simply the truth, there's natural inequality in the world that we have to acknowledge as well. But all of this has culminated right now in our culture where people distrust institutions, and that includes the church. And the question becomes, why would you want to be part of something that you cannot trust? Uh, and that's a, a real question for many people. There's also another uh, thing that I must mention is that people now say the most important thing is relationship. That um, I, I agree with that. I think relationship is a very high value and it's a noble thing. But for me, the question is how do we work our relationships out? That's, that's the key issue. Because often if we just get consumed with personal relationship, the result of that is individualism. And ultimately, ultimately individualism becomes tribalistic and exclusive rather than inclusive and transforming. And um, that's why certain groups of people have an identity. And if you, if, you're, if you're part of that group, you assume the certain identity of that group. And th that's how you know you're part of the tribe. So, for example, certain people grow their beards in a certain way. And they wear tan shoes. And I like these things, beards and tan shoes. And um, it communicates that you see the world in a certain way. And you, perhaps you drink coffee in a certain way <laughs> or whatever it is. This, and I'm not against any of those things, but I, I, I do say that they become negative when they become exclusive. Because exclusive tribalism always leads to fighting. And we see many examples of this played out uh, in our culture. And certainly, if I look at the American situation and American politics in the, the last um, number of years, there you can see tribalism, exclusive tribalism being played out. And all that results in is fighting. 
people not seeking to engage and understand. I'm very different from you. This is my view. I can't ever uh, try and reach out and understand you. And it results in exclusivism, tribalism, fighting, dissension. And we can see that also in the church. Um, what did Paul say? Said Paul, some said, I'm of, of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Um, people say these days, uh, I'm of Nicky Gumbel, I'm of Bethel, I'm of Tim Keller. And there can be all of these things that, that are, become exclusive and then result in a kind of tribalism that doesn't seek to engage with anyone that doesn't see quite like you do. And it can become a negative thing, which just brings division and fighting. I've also seen this uh, in terms of churches being infiltrated with this kind of thinking, uh, ind highly individualistic thinking. So language is used like this. What's most important is just you and your relationship with Jesus. All you need is you and the Holy Spirit. You can just do church as you walk through the woods. My church is nature. You don't really need other people, and you certainly don't need the inconvenience of church community. See, this is very individualistic thinking and the way that our world thinks. And uh, the challenge is this, is that um, if we really go back to the source, we go back to the scripture, we go back to the Bible, it's profound to me that the Bible never uses, seldom uses, individualistic language. It is always inclusive. It always refers to communities, families, nations, and all of us together being God's people. And so when you put all these things together, you can see that we are living in a culture which is increasingly secular, hostile to New Testament Christianity, and it's certainly not comfortable with, with committing to a local church family. But I want to encourage you this morning that uh, we need to let our lives conform to the Scripture and to the Bible and influence our culture that way rather than letting our culture influence us and, and, and influence how we see church and community and each other. And that requires ongoing, gentle courage to stand and to gently encourage others into what the Bible says is of value. And so I'm fully convinced that belonging to a local church family is a key step to bringing revival uh, to our community in evangelizing the world and seeing the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And um, I'm absolutely convinced that God passionately loves his church and he loves local churches, every single local church with all of his heart. And, and, and I'm fully convinced that the local church is the hope of the world. And so when I reflect back now, I've been involved in leadership in the church over 30 years. I, I can honestly say that one of the great joys of my life has been the friendships that I've formed in church communities. And I still have people now that I keep in contact with that live all over the world that became dear friends of mine in the local church communities that I was part of over the last 30 years. I've had the privilege of leading a local community here in St. Albans for the last 20 years and see people come through the church as um, children in families. They, get, they grow up, they get married, and now they've been having children. And that's a, an incredible privilege of being part of a church community. I've, I've, I've walked on the Great Wall of China. I've drunk 
Ari, which is like a, a maize milk, fermented maize milk with people in a gur in Mongolia. Uh, I've been all over the world and befriended Christians on every continent of the world. And this is an incredible privilege of belonging to the church of Jesus. There's been much pain in my life also as the result of church. And I, I want to say this um, as kindly as I can, um, because we've also had to help people that have um, lost their children through drug addiction, through accidents, through tragedy, through disease, through violence. We've had to share the pain of criticism, uh, personal criticism of our leadership over sometimes at various stages in the journey of church. And we know firsthand what it means to feel the pain of betrayal. And this is not kind of except, any exception. Uh, I think that's the reality that anyone is involved in any kind of leadership faces those kind of challenges. But my point is this, that I too could cite many reasons to be reticent to commit to a local church out of my own experience. As, as I've said, many positive ones and some negative ones too. But my point is that the church is an incredibly beautiful but messy community. And at the end of the day, Jesus loves the church more than anything else. That's why he calls the church his bride. That's why he calls himself the bridegroom. That's why he says he's coming back for this beautiful bride, which is his own, the church. And that's ultimately why church is so important. Because at the end of the day, it is incredibly important to Jesus. It is the bride that he's coming back for. It's, it's, the, it's, it's what he loves with all of his heart, and that's why it matters so much. So then, third question we want to consider is, why, why become a member of a local church family? Well, there are many reasons. I, I, I've thought of seven. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to do seven reasons with you. I'm just going to talk about one thing this week. And it's simply this, that it's part of authentic conversion. It's part of authentic biblical conversion. You know, yeah, our, our culture is concerned with what is authentic, isn't it? So high value in our culture this, the, the, at this point. What is authentic? You go to a restaurant, you want to have authentic food. You, you want to know that you are getting authentic, real. You're not getting secondhand or someone's interpretation of something. You want the real thing. It needs to be authentic. Well... Belonging to a local church is part of being authentically a Christian. It's being part of authentical biblical conversion. Uh, our mission statement is rooted in Christ, planted in family, fruitful in life. And that captures what authentic New Testament conversion really is. I could put it another way. You might have heard it put like this. The three C's of authentic biblical conversion. Converted to Christ. Converted to his church. Converted to the cause of Christ. That's saying the same thing, just using different language. And if one of those three things is not in place in our lives, then our conversion, our, our expression of Christianity, is not really authentically biblical. We can't love Jesus without loving the church. We can't love Jesus without loving the cause of Christ, which is to evangelize and to see other people come to faith. And so, if we love Jesus, we need to be taking that same message, the gospel that so transformed our lives, and declaring it boldly to others so that they too can enjoy the freedom that we enjoy. And so, 
that's why I'm trying to convince you this morning and encourage you this morning as we think about church community that it really does become a priority for all of us. Uh, let me say it again. If it's not a priority for us, we're not being authentically Christians in the way that the Bible describes. Uh, C.S. Lewis, wonderful writer that many of you know, uh, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters in which uh, a senior devil is trying to disciple a junior demon. And the conversation between these two is what is recorded in the book. And so Screwtape is the, is the kind of the senior kind of uh, demon. And he's saying, he says to this junior uh, demon, he says, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. It's a gentle slope. It's soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Well, saying in a very, very um, amazing way that actually we can just gradually slide away from what is true and what is authentic. And it's not marked with any major signposts. We just kind of slip away. And if we're not careful, it can happen to all of us. And so a true family of God, a true community, a true expression of local church community, uh, it's not only that we are saved by grace, but it's also that we are a loving community that take care and show mutual responsibility for the encouragement of everyone in God's house. And so can I encourage you this morning, as we are in this time of isolation and lockdown with COVID, that every one of us can take responsibility for everyone else. All of us can pick up the phone. All of us can get onto a WhatsApp group and encourage people. All of us can send a message saying, my, my friend, I'm really praying for you. Every one of us can, can drop off a gift to someone or a card. We can all take responsibility, mutually take responsibility for the love and care of each other. That's what a true church community does. And so um, Jesus both gathered disciples to himself and then he sent them out on mission. And so that's what we want to do as a local church too. We want to gather people in homes and then the scripture also encourages us don't get out of the habit of meeting together. So as we can meet together, we want to meet together to encourage each other and then we want to be sent out into the community, into the world to win others for Christ. And so being a member of a local church doesn't mean that you're, it doesn't, um, it isn't a sign saying, it's, well, it is a sign affirming that you are saved. It doesn't save you. We are only saved by grace. But it is a sign that you are authentically saved and that you love God's people with all of your heart. So when we become a member of God's family, we uh, put ourselves in the position where we open our hearts and our lives to our brothers and sisters and become accountable in a real way to each other so that we can encourage each other, stand with each other, and prayerfully live our lives out. So, to finish, I want to say this. We don't want to ever be, um, sail our own little ship. We, we want to be those that, that are in this together, that are, are linking arms with each other. And so... Um, I'm fully convinced that being part of a church family is not an add-on to um, believing in Jesus. It's part of fundamentally what it means to believe 
in Jesus. It's part of our, our um, authentic biblical conversion. So let's, let's not ever give in to um, picking and choosing. Uh, you know, and I think right now we've got this big challenge with, the, with uh, not being able to meet that we can pick and choose what we like on the internet. And so we can like this, we say we like this person's preaching, we like this worship in this church, and we can kind of become connoisseurs of churches rather than just committing ourselves to a local church where we can make a difference. So let's not, be, let's not give ourselves to be consumers, but rather let's give ourselves to being builders of God's church and his kingdom. You know, I have, I've said to you that I, I, I too have had moments in my life where I've been frustrated with church at some point in my life. But I always remember this. When you, when you join a church family, you're not included for the function that you perform. You are adopted as a son or a daughter into a family. And your relationships in the family are ultimately what bring glory to God. So my encouragement to you is uh, join hands, become part of this family, or if you are uh, not just this family, there are many, many wonderful churches in, in our community, but wh why don't you commit, your, commit yourself to joining hands, to opening your heart, and letting people love you and you love others, so that people can depend on you, and that you can learn to pray and serve and give your time and your talents. And you can own the vision of a local community to see many saved and come to faith in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. Plant yourself in the family of God. Allow your life to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as you love others. And give yourself to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what authentic conversion is plant yourself in God's family and allow him to use you in a profound way. Amen.